As I said before, I, w- I was wanting and, and thinking that maybe I could start on chapter 4 and do some service to it, but, and I might have could have started, but I don't want to rush it. It's a pretty significant portion of Scripture, and it's going. my understanding of Malachi chapter 4 is probably going to be somewhat different than most of yours, and so I want to take some time with Malachi 4 and walk through that verse by verse and kind of show you how I understand Malachi 4 to um, what it means and how it finds its fulfillment in the New Testament. So um, I'm, I'm just going to cover today, I'm going to cover 16, 17, and 18 and finish out chapter 3, and then we'll pick up. And I've got some reading for you for next week that I want you to read in anticipation of what we're going to be doing in Malachi chapter 4, okay? Fair enough? All right, <clears throat> let's read the scripture. Malachi 3, starting in verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his words. You may be seated. Oh, and I was going to tell you that I did find out what was wrong with my ankle, too. I didn't sprain it. I didn't twist it. I've got bone spurs uh, on my ankle, and so I guess I'm getting old. Just like you, Ben? Yeah, you are pretty old, bro. So pray for that. They did some, uh, they did what, they gave me a cortisone shot, which, have you ever had a cortisone shot? I thought I was dying. And uh, the, the doctor's like, I flinched, you know, because I try to be tough, but, you know, what am I going to do? It was like he was shooting my leg with a hot molten lava gun. And I flinched a little bit, and he's like, he's like uh, does that hurt? I said, yeah. He said, what do you feel? I said, pain. <laughs> what else am I going to feel? And then on the other side where the actual spurs are, he took a needle and did what was called a barbitage. I don't know if you know what that is, but it's like when they put a needle in you and they jam the needle in there and they try to break up all of those calcium deposits. So he numbed it, thank goodness. And so I couldn't feel it, but I could feel my legs shaking and I'm like, this has to hurt. <laughs> but uh, praise God for the numbing agent that I didn't feel it. So that did actually help a little bit. So uh, I'm able to dance in my worship, you know, and so that's good. Um, but uh, pray for me that that he if it doesn't work then they're gonna have to do surgery and take off that bone spur so we'll see what happens I I don't want to do surgery I've only had one my entire life and uh, I don't want to do it again so all right well let's break down these verses right here and uh, see what the Lord have for us today and uh, I want to prepare and I think we've already been looking at Malachi the whole book and we've already been kind of breaking it down and unpacking it and trying to understand what God is teaching us through the prophet Malachi and as we've moved through the book we know that the book was built around a bunch of rhetorical questions that God is basically rebuking the people of Israel as we move to this last prophetic word of the old covenant before the close of the old testament the the intertestamental period and then the opening of the new covenant where Jesus Christ arrives on scene Um, and John the Baptist comes before him as his messenger preparing a way in the wilderness. And as we move through Malachi, what we have witnessed is God 
declaring what the issues were that he had with the people of Israel, with those that were supposed to be his worshipers, those that were supposed to be his people. But while their lips spoke of him and and while they made sacrifices to some degree, they were not there in heart. They were not there in spirit. They were going through the motions. They were withholding from God, not only their heart, not only themselves, but they were withholding the tithe. They were bringing lame sacrifices, blind sacrifices. They were giving partial gifts, and they were withholding because they loved themselves more than they loved God and more than they loved God's people. Last week, we talked about the tithe, and we uh, broke down, I unpacked the tithe for you, and some of you said you'd never heard that before. Maybe you agree with me, maybe you don't. I hope that I showed you with lots of scriptural evidence that it's not my opinion, this is just the way the scripture reads, that the tithe was not a command by God as to be a standard of all time on how people would give to him. Rather, it was the method by which the nation of Israel would would carry out and would fund the government of the time. That Israel was a what's called a theocracy, okay? And that the temple, the priesthood, served as the governing body over the nation of Israel. And the tithe that was given, which equaled, we laid it out, through all of the tithes, which there were several tithes, there was the um, the first fruits tithe, the the Levite tithe, there was the a festival tithe, which happened three times a year, and then there was the poor tithe, which in which happened every third year and every sixth year of the Sabbath cycle, every seven years, and these tithes together equaled roughly twenty three to twenty eight percent of an is of an Israelite income or household so it was an agricultural society and so uh, most of the people there's estimated upwards of about 95 percent of the people would have been farmers whether they were livestock farmers or they grew crops or whatever this was the way that they funded the government so Old Testament tithing would be more akin to give, paying taxes in a, in a New Testament. So when Jesus says, render to Caesar whatever is Caesar's, that it was for the funding of the government. We also see in the Old Testament that, it, that the free will offering would have been more parallel to the way that giving is to be done in the New Covenant, as Paul lays out for us as he wrote to the Corinthians, that everyone is to give out of what he has decided in his own heart. And we talked about how that's scary for the preacher to preach that because people can be stingy, right? But it's not for us to decide and it's not for us to mandate what you should give. If you want to withhold from God and you know in your heart that you should be giving more, then that's something that you'll have to deal with with God who will bring a much stronger rod than I could ever bring. And plus, I don't want to distrust God in who, who's the one that said that just tell them to give out of the abundance of their heart and that God loves a cheerful giver. So however you give is to be decided. Now, I did want to follow up with this because I kind of left it open into the last week. Some of you say, well, what if I want to give 10%? What if that's a way that I've decided keeps me accountable and, and that's what I want to do? I say, praise God. There is no, there is no mandated percentage that you must give but there's no mandated way that you give except that you give whatever you've decided in your own heart so Heather and I we decided a long time ago that we want to give a minimum of 10 percent that we think is a good baseline starting point 
but that we want also to pursue after the Lord. And if he shows us other ways that he wants us to give, then we want him to show us that. And we, we pray that we would be faithful in those things. And so we don't really know how much we give. That If we feel led to give, then we give. We try to be faithful to do that. We're not always great. We're not always perfect. But that's what we want to do. So if you say, you talk with your husband, your wife, you talk with your own spirit, and you say, well, you know, I, I'm not sure what I should give, but I know I want to give God at least 10%. That's just what I want to do. Well, praise God. Whatever you've decided, then you do that. If you decide to give 90 and you want to be disciplined with that and you think that that's what the Lord wants, then do that. Whatever you want to do is what God wants. And I think that we need to leave it that way as it produces and demands that we trust God, whether it be the preacher who sees the accounting in the church and see what needs to go on here, or whether it be with you, you know your own heart. You know whether or not you're robbing God. You know whether or not you're withholding. So let's leave it there, and we'll trust God to do the rest, right? Now, what I wanna, how I want to transition from that into this part of the text is, is that what you notice is, is that this is all about the heart. This is all about your relationship with God. This is all about not a mandatory, regulated system, written code by which we follow the letter, but it is, are you in love with God? Do you enjoy God? Do you desire to please Him? Do you want to give? Is it, is it in your being to look at God and say, God, what would you have me do? How can I love you more today? How can I serve you? How can I serve your people? What would you have for me to go? Sorry, it just does something inside of me. So he points to the heart. So he's saying that this whole method, this whole, this whole system was to drive you to the place where you know that there's nothing good in man. And you always fail when trying to make sure by your own will and by your own uh, opinion and your own design that you fail every time but it's only the one that has faith in God and loves God and pursues God that it's those who are set free it's those who are victorious so having displayed that and as we went through the the first part of chapter three and God speaking of uh, there, him making sure to maintain the covenant that he made with Levi. That he's saying destruction is coming. You've been against me. I'm not going to stand for it. There's going to be judgment. There's going to be a time of falling. Yet I will sustain. Yet for my name's sake, he says here, he says, he says, but who can stand, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can uh, stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. So he says, there's this refiner coming. There's this, there's this uh, purification coming. Who's going to be able to stand? But earlier on, he talks about uh, sustaining the, the, the Levitical covenant that he made to make sure that he would be there and to make sure that the offerings that would come would be pleasing. And I showed you 
you how that would come through the Messiah, through Jesus Christ, and there would be no loss, but that God would make sure. Now, I want to move into verses 16 through 18 of chapter 3 with this in mind. Now, let's look at this and let's break it down a little bit. Chapter 3, verse 16 says this, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Now, what, we, what this is pointing out and part of this is showing us is that there were the op- there was those who lived in an opposite way, in a, in a counterproductive way of this, in a contrary way. And that was those who didn't fear the Lord, who didn't esteem his name. They had no respect for God, and they continued to disobey God. They continued to rob God. They continued to do these things that was a blemish on the testimony and the image of God. And that's what he's been pointing out. He said the Gentile nations, the nations surrounding Israel are looking at you and they're thinking badly of me. Because he's saying that you should be a witness and a testimony of my great power. And when the surrounding nations look at you and look at the way that you love me, look at the way that you interact with me, that they should be drawn to me. That they should see a better way. They should see a a greater love, a greater care, a greater God. And that it would cause them to desire to worship me, not to despise me. And so you've brought reproach. On my name. And we see that coming out of the the, uh, previous section. In verse 13, he says, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. Uh, He says, You have said, It is vain to serve God. Uh, What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the uh, the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. You see, this is in contrast to those people. They say, what good does it do to serve God? What good does it do? There's no profit in serving God. We get nothing for serving God. And look at all these evil, wicked doers out here. Look how, look how good they have it. You know what this makes me think of? It makes me think of those who had been freed by God through the voice of Moses, through the plagues, through the Red Sea. They get to the, the wilderness. They're walking through the wilderness, and God has provided him what? them what? Presence, his own presence. He's provided them uh, manna from heaven as much as they desire. He's provided for them in every way. Yet what do they say? Why have you brought us out here to die? What good is it being with you? We would rather go back to Egypt and be enslaved because at least there we had the things that we wanted. You see, they couldn't see that being with God and having God was the prize. You see, they were idolaters. How much of an indictment is that on our church today? Not necessarily just our church, but the church today, the visible church today. That we go to church and we do these things and we tithe and we, we, we read our Bibles. And all of those are good things, whatever you want to do. But how many times is it true that the only reason we do those things is that we're strong-arming God into giving us something else? 
that God, I'll go to church if you do this. God, I will pray if you'll do this. God, I will seek you. I will, I'll read the Bible, God, as long as you are doing these things. So we're trying to manipulate God. We're trying to strong arm him. We're trying to put him in a place to say, God, I'll serve you if you'll give me that which I desire the most. And so we use God as a stepping stone to get to our true God, which points us out as idolaters. This here, though, he turns his focus and shifts it to those who are faithful. Those who love him and actually do fear his name. For there was a righteous remnant in Israel of all of those who were corrupt, all of those who were lip service only, all of those who have robbed God and who he has condemned here. He says, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. What does it mean? What does that mean? Well, he doesn't really tell us. I've looked at several commentaries, and there's opinions all over the board. He doesn't really tell us what they were saying to one another. Were they collaborating on, you know, trying to make God's name great again? What were they doing? What were they talking about? We don't really know. But what it does make me think of is, is another text of Scripture that speaks of uh, those that speak of the Lord. Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 7 says this, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Pay attention how the word starting place is the heart. And this is what this is all leading to. And unpacking these verses in Malachi, is he's saying that it can't be outward. It can't be a manipulation of God by the twisting of your hands. But it must come from the inside, the inward being. It must come from your love of God. He says... And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently. What? Teach what? The words. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way. And when you lie down. And when you rise up. That the word of the living God would be so much a part of your being. Your inside. The inner man. That every time you open your mouth. That the word of God flows forth from your mouth. And you know what that is? The word of God is life. You want to speak life into those around you. Then you must hide God's word in your heart. And you must have a deep rooted relationship with God Almighty. By the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. That writes God's word on your heart. He takes out the heart of stone. Replaces it with a heart of flesh. That he writes it on your heart. And he causes you to walk in his ways and obey his rules. He causes you. He puts his spirit within you. And that spirit in your inner man, in the heart, as it were, comes out in your speech. It comes out in your talks with your children as you pray with them. And see the all-encompassing nature of the way that the Word of God flows out of your being. You may say, well, I don't know the Word like that. That's for the preachers. No, it's not. It's for every believer. You understand that salvation is an implanting of the Word of God in you. Only those who abide in the Word will be saved. You understand? That the Word of God is the seed. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. What's the gospel? It's the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the Word of God that comes inside of a man, that comes inside of a woman, and it gives birth to new life. 
life. It gives birth to that, that new being, that new person, that new man, that new woman. And out of that seed grows a massive tree. And out of that tree comes the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of the Spirit. And that's why the fruit of the Spirit is evidence of those who have truly been born again, who have had the seed of God, the gospel planted inside of them, and it has rooted and that you are now growing in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an inward thing. So I believe what he's speaking of here, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, that they came together. Another text that I didn't have this written down that just popped into my mind was Revelation, where he says, we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the power of our testimony. That, I'm, that I see here that they were testifying to one another. It may have been a part of it. They may have looked at what God had said through the prophet Malachi after, after this huge text of, uh, will man rob God? And, and they start talking to one another. Look at, look at our situation. Look at what God has done for us. Look at what God has done for me. God has blessed us so richly. How can we be robbing God? Do we remember his word? And the word of God started flowing out of their inward being and they started giving testimony. They started remembering the word of God. It started to flow out of them and they started to speak to one another. That's another thing that jumps out at me here is the relationships here. We speak with one another about the word of God. That's why it's an imperative that we come together. You know, did you know that going to church is not an option in the scripture? Everybody says, well, I can be a believer without going to church. You can be a believer possibly, but you're an ignorant believer. And I mean ignorant by unknowing. You cannot be a faithful believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and not go to church, not gather together with the saints. For the Bible says, do not forsake the gathering together as some are in the habit of doing. But let us draw near to one another. Let us come together and spur one another on to good works and to righteousness. Let us push one another. We do life together. You see, they spoke together. The word of God came in twos. Jesus sent them out two by two. That we speak with one another the word of God. He said, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. It goes on to say, the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Lots in there. But let's take it a little bit at a time. Then the Lord paid attention and heard them. Are you kidding me? That God Almighty, the creator of the universe, the one who gave you your hair color, some of you, The one who decided what shoe size you would have. The one who makes the tree grow and shapes the mountain to make it look like it does. The one who rained down the waters to fill the oceans and the streams and the lakes and the ponds. The one who teaches the fish how to, how to swim. This great God, this great and magnificent creator hears you, Dennis. He hears me. He listens to you. All throughout the scripture, we see God answering the pleas and the cries of his children when their voices are uplifted. And how often is it that this happens when their voices are uplifted together? Remember what I told you last week in Joel chapter 2 of how the advancement of the kingdom and how the advancement of the nation was said to happen. 
It is when the elders consecrate a fast and bring the people together and that they weep and cry and pursue after God. When they are gathered together, this goes back to them speaking together. That God heard them when they came together, when they were speaking together, when they were testifying, when the word of God was going forth, when they were gathered together, God heard them. He heard them. There's something about it, and I'm not saying hocus pocus, but there's something about God that, that God ordained in his word and in the creative order and in the plan that he had that for some reason when all of you gather together and the word of God goes forth, magnificent things happen for the kingdom of God. Where two or three are gathered in his name, there I am in, in their midst. That we are to gather, that we are to speak of the Lord. That is an amazing thing that the Lord paid attention and he heard them. You know, who is man, who is God, who is man that God should, should think of him? Who are we? But through Christ, I'm going to make the case. Through Christ, through God's everlasting covenant that he made, that he, his, we grab his attention. Now, I don't mean to, to convey the idea that God is like, oh, what, what? God is omniscient. He knows everything. But the text says it this way for a reason. And what it's trying to show us is, is that when we gather and when we speak of the Lord and his word goes forth, that God's eyebrows go up if he had eyebrows. He'd be like, hmm, he paid attention. That's what the text says. He pays attention. And, and he heard them. And what happened when he heard them? It says, And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. He took note. A book was written. He took note. That when God's people, the elect, the remnant, the righteous remnant that were really about God, that they really did have faith and they loved God. It wasn't show. It wasn't some demonstration. But they loved God. When they got together and when the word of God went forth, whatever that means, testimony, uh, the teaching of his word, whatever that means, that he, he stood up, he paid attention, it got his attention. He heard him, he started listening in. God Almighty started listening in. And he's like, oh, this is good. He started writing this down. That's what the text says, okay? God Almighty, Yahweh. He heard them. And it says he started jotting down notes. Now, this isn't to suggest that the books weren't always written. There, and I could spend a couple of Sundays on this, but there are books in the book, okay? There are books in the book. Different people have different opinions on how many books there are in the book. We know that there are at least three, and I've seen people try to outline up to ten, okay? I'll give you the three that I think are pretty significantly demonstrated in the Scriptures. First is the book of life, Okay? Now, the book of life has already been written, all right? It's, your name is either there. Uh, well, I, there's debate on this, too. Uh, I talked to Keith a little bit at length about this, and I think I agree with Keith that everybody's name is written in the book of life, but not everybody's name stays in the book of life. It's almost as if <clears throat> some are written in pencil and some are written in permanent ink, okay? 
Now, you might say, what do you mean? Well, here's what I mean. Throughout the scripture, it's mentioned several different times in this way. That if you are not following the Lord, if you're not obeying God, if you're not faithful to God, the, the unrighteous, their names will be blotted out of the book of life. Okay? Now, theologically, that gets a little bit complicated when you th- start talking about election and when you start talking about predestination and, and God's righteous remnant and all these types of different things. I think that's best understood, and I'm only briefly going to talk about this. We can talk about it later if you want to, through what, we, what I would refer to as common grace. Okay? There is a sense in which Jesus Christ's sacrifice extends to all of creation. I would say that Jesus Christ's sacrifice extends to all of creation, all of mankind, and the simple fact that you haven't died already. That he upholds everything with the word of his mouth. That Jesus Christ's sacrifice is the avenue, the source by which every human being has life, even if they're not a believer. Something has to be keeping them alive because we're all depraved from birth and we all deserve to die from birth. And if it wasn't for the good graces of God, then everyone would die that wasn't the elect. Does that make sense? The only question is, how far does that common grace go? And I think we see it here in the book of life. Is that every human being has a portion of life and a type of life until that life runs out. The only question is, do they have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and are they granted eternal life in which the name remains in the book throughout eternity? Okay? That's, that's the book of life and that's my understanding of how that works. Now, there are at least two other books that, that I understand, and I think there, there are probably maybe more. It's not a hill to die on. But there's a book of sins or works, okay? And then there is a book of remembrance or reward, okay? So there's a book of life in which is recorded who will live, how long, and what type of life they'll have. There is a book of sins or a book of works that records what you've done wrong, And then there's a book of remembrance, a a book that demonstrates what you've done right. Now, it's, it's good for you to understand that this is not a book that records the righteousness that flows out of one's own being, out of his own will, but out of what God has done in him to produce those works. Remember in Ephesians chapter, uh, Ephesians chapter two, where he says that you were created for good works. Remember that. And how? By grace you have been saved through faith. That's not of yourself, but a gift of God, lest any man should boast that you are God's workmanship. You were created for works. Okay? So, let's move on from that. We could say a lot more. But the book of remembrance here, I believe we can ascribe to that book that is recording those things that God is doing through you, the work that demonstrates the reliability and the actuality of saving faith. And not only is it the demonstration, the evidence of true saving faith, but it is the record by which he will know how to reward you in heaven. There is rewards in heaven, okay? Now, I could go on and on and on about that. If you want to think, uh, look at some more about that, you can look up several different things. Matthew 6, 20 talks about Jesus says, store up for yourself treasures in heaven, 
okay? Don't store up treasure here where moths get to it and thieves steal, break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You come to God with, a, with an upright heart, with a transformed heart. And that work that God does in you produces these works. And as you go about your life and as you're doing life with God and as you're ministering to the people around you and as you are speaking the gospel, as you are fearing the Lord, as you are esteeming his name, all of these things are recorded. Isn't that amazing? And see how this answers, the, you see how all this is flowing together now, watch the context. What this is answering is the previous judgment against God made by the people. When they say this, what is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking uh, as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? These wicked people are the ones getting the rewards, and they're not, even, they're not even acknowledging God. We're over here giving and giving and giving. He's talking about us robbing them, and we ain't even got nothing. Look at these evil people over here. They don't even love God, and they're blessed. Look how blessed they are. And then comes this great, this great uh, answer to that. He says, but the Lord heard the righteous, the ones who spoke of him, who loved him, and he made note. And their reward may not be here on earth. It may not be here on earth, but he's taking notes. And in that great day, there will be reward like you cannot possibly imagine. And I would even go so far as to say, I can't cover it today. But the principle of reaping and sowing that we see here on a, on a grand scale is also true in, in this life too. It may not always come in the form of big bank accounts and nice cars and big houses, but it comes in the form, sometimes monetarily. I'm not going to say that. I do believe that God blesses when, when people live out his life that way sometimes. But what we know is true is that he grants peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and all of these things. That it's a wonderful life to live in the presence of the Lord. So this book of remembrance is him writing down. And if you want to see some of those other books, um, come, I can give you some other scripture um, later. But Psalm 69, 28, Revelation 3, 5, Revelation 21, 27. Several of these talk about these books. But let's move on. So he's writing down uh, about these people who are talking about him. He wrote down, of those who fear the Lord and esteemed his name. And I've already told you that this is in reaction or response to those who were just pointed out for having no fear of him whatsoever. It gets even more beautiful. Watch verse 17. They shall be mine. That's beautiful, isn't it? They shall be mine. They shall be mine says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Do you not see the great demonstration of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ right here? He says, they will be mine. How? Because I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. How does a man spare his son who serves him? Look at Jesus Christ who perfectly served God by laying down his life for the beloved. He laid down his life. He gave his life. And Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead because of his one deity, but because of his perfect righteous obedience to the Father. I'm going to read some scripture here in a second to show you this from a new covenant perspective. But here's, 
Here's the beautiful inside of this. You need to understand, and I spoke to you about this a couple of weeks ago, that oftentimes we so identify with our sins that we lose sight that in God's eyes, if we've been born again, if we've been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, that we really are clean before God. And that, yes, though we have no righteousness of our own to speak of, we have been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin became sin so that we would become what? Oh, wicked sinners just waiting on the day. No, he who knew no sin became our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That we, Daniel, would become the righteousness of God. Steve, are you kidding me? That we would become the righteousness of God. That we would be clothed in righteousness. And God says, they will be mine. They will be my treasured possession. And I will spare them like I spared my son. Now, I will show you something here in just a moment. Because at first glance, he didn't spare his son. But we're going to see him not sparing his son was the means by which he would spare us. But the son was vindicated and resurrected from the grave. Now let's go to some new covenant text here before I run out of time even on these three verses. Turn with me. Let's look at um, the treasured possession first because that is the first part of that. And we'll look at the sparing of the son. So turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Now I'm going to read Malachi. And then I'm going to go to 1 Peter chapter 2 because what I want to demonstrate here is that, okay, so we got to ask the question, what is he talking about here? Is he talking about the end, end times? Is he talking about the first coming, second coming, intertestamental? What is he talking about here? And we, I've already tried to establish that the first part of that refining by fire was the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ because the messenger that he was talking about, my messenger that would prepare the way, and the messenger of the covenant was John the Baptist and Jesus Christ coming to display the way that God would transform the kingdom and transition from the old covenant to the new covenant and would distinguish from the righteous from the unrighteous and that Jesus Christ would be the marker of those who would be judged and all of it would be burnt down and the only thing that would be left was Jesus Christ the root of of Jesse okay so now if that's true that through the Lord Jesus Christ there would be a great uh, devastation of sin and a great awakening of the righteous Let's watch and see if it plays out here just as well. Remember the treasure possession. So Malachi chapter 3, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. When did that happen? 1 Peter chapter 2, I'm going to start in uh, verse 4. 
As you come to him, a living stone, that's Jesus, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. You see this transition happening. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, how? Through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame Jesus Christ stands apart as the great anchor point and center point and whatever you do with him is the deciding factor of whether you're faithful to God or unfaithful to God this is how we know who the precious are listen what it says he says and whoever believes in him will not be put to to shame but verse 7 says so the honor is for you who believe but for those who do not believe the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling a rock of offense he's speaking to the Jews here and he's saying that Jesus Christ is the one he is the mediator he is the one that is the great line in the sand Jesus Christ is how we know what you do with Jesus is is what decides who you are to God are you an enemy of God or are you a lover of God are you uh, wayward and unrighteous and wicked or are you redeemed blessed and righteous in Jesus Christ watch what he says they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do he had already told them what was coming in Malachi and the rest of the Old Testament they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation watch this a people for his own possession that you may proclaim speak of the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light once you were not a people but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you had received mercy. Do you remember in chapter uh, 2 when he was talking about how they uh, abused the sojourners? Listen to what he says. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and ex uh, exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. He is saying here that, no, you are the ones through the Lord Jesus Christ who will be my people. And no longer, no longer will you be outcast with me, but you are brought in. You are one with me. No longer are you exiles, but we are one. You are my people and I am your God that you are my treasured possession. It's through the Lord Jesus Christ that anyone becomes his treasured possession turn back to Malachi you see then what he is saying here is a foreshadowing and a speaking of what would come next and he's already been talking about the the messenger of the covenant Jesus Christ ushering in the new covenant Jeremiah 31 31 he is speaking of Jesus Christ who will be the one who brings into the kingdom of God those who are God's people and he is the one who has always done so any righteous, any faithful have been through the Lord Jesus Christ previous to this Malachi or 
post after Malachi. He goes on to say that they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his, his son who serves him. Look, at me, look with me at Romans chapter 8. My mind immediately went here when I saw these words, as a man spares his own son. Romans 8 speaks of, of the sparing of a son and what that means for us. And just remember that Malachi is speaking of this everlasting covenant that God would make sure would happen and that could not fail, that he would grant and make sure it was God who would do it. It was God who would fulfill it. Listen to what Romans 8, starting in verse 31, says. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, at first when I read that, I said, well, maybe this doesn't relate. Because it says in Malachi that he will spare us as he spares his own son. But wait, Romans chapter 8 says that he did not spare his own son. If he didn't spare his own son, then what does that mean for us? But let's read further in Romans chapter 8 because it's a beautiful expectation that we have that God would spare us like he did his son. Watch. So, before we read the rest of it, Jesus Christ was subjected to death so that life would abound. He experienced the temporary uh, abuse and condemnation so that the eternal life would burst forth from the tomb. So he was not spared on this level, but he was vindicated and ascended and glorified on the eternal level. Watch what it says. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is uh, to condemn Christ? Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see it? Do you see it, people of God? God says to the people in Malachi's day, to the faithful, he says, I see you. I see you. I see your love for me. I hear what you, I hear you talking about me. I hear you whispering the glories of, of my name. I hear your testimony. I'm paying attention. I hear you. I'm writing it all down. I'm writing it all down. And all of those who fear me and who love me and who esteem my name, and you are one of mine, 
then you just know that there's coming a time when the covenant will be made steadfast and sure and you will be my people and I will be your God. There will be no one that can take you out of my hand because of who I am. That you will be my treasured possession. Can you believe that? God Almighty would look at you with big old doe eyes and be like, I love you. Like I laugh on my wife to look at me, right? <laughs> Don't you hear that in this text? Man, the world thinks God's like a, like a big bully, right? Just. <laughs> but for those who love God, those who know him and fear his name, and esteem, and they want to be known by his name, and they want to serve him, and they want to love, that God is not out to get them. God is out to keep them. And not come. he's come at my bride. You know, I love that picture in Romans chapter 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And we know from the scriptures. So he says here, he says, you, you my people. You my people. You mine. My treasured possession. Did you know that, Sandy? That God treasures you. Oh, my. Do you know how rotten I am? Do you know the things I've done in my life? And God's like, I treasure you. He treasures you. And you, and you, if you're in Christ Jesus. Because in Christ Jesus, you've been made perfect. You've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And when God looks at you, he just sees, he sees his, his possession that he loves. And how will, how will he spare you? They said, there's no profit in loving God. There's no profit in loving God. You know the prophet in loving God? The prophet in being one of God's elect? The prophet in, in having faith and loving and being in deep-rooted, passionate relationship with God? You know, you know the prophet in it is that he will spare you and vindicate you just like his son who served him perfectly. And is the only true Israelite. He's the only one to fulfill the law that they broke. He was the only one to live perfectly in the sight of his father. To walk out the life we couldn't walk. To die the death that we should have died so that we can live the life that he should have lived and died. But we will live with him through the resurrection. That's the prophet so, you see, oh man, that's why Paul goes on in Romans chapter 8 to say, to say, no, in all these things, and this will play into chapter 4 too, because we're going to see this desolation coming in chapter 4. That's why Paul's saying this in Romans chapter 8, I think looking back, that's why Malachi is saying it. He's saying, look, the destruction is coming, hard times is coming, pain is coming, Destruct desolation is coming, but just know that God's going to hold you. And he's going to spare you. And though it's going to get rough and it's going to get, it's going to get horrendous at times, you're going to be okay. Because God is faithful. And you're more than conquerors through Christ. 
Well, the last part of those verses, the last verse, verse 18. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. So we see then that it comes back to this outworking of the inward transformation that has taken place through the work of God and the way that God is holding you and causing you to be his people. So this, this whole push here, it says that they shall be mine. So when you are mine, God says, when you belong to me and you fear me and you're one with me, then what happens then, see what comes first? You being God's treasured possession. You belonging to him. Paul tells us in Corinthians as well, he says, that do you not know that you have been bought? You are not your own, but you have been bought with a price. That when you belong to God, that when you are his treasured possession, he will not let you go. He will not let you turn. That he will hold you steadfast. And though you may stumble, you will not fall. And while you may be faithless, he's still faithful. And that God is going to work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And that God will keep you in the day of trial and in the day of temptation. That God will hold you steadfast. And he says that through his work in you, that it will be known to everybody around that you are one of God's. That there will be a great line of distinction. That that line of distinction will be the person of Jesus Christ and how he works in your life. A couple of texts. You can come on up. Bang, come on up. A couple of texts to kind of show you how this plays itself out. When he says, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. John 5, 19 through 24 says this. So Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For what the father does the Son does likewise, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. That we may honor the Son just as we honor the Father. That's a blasphemous saying if Jesus Christ isn't God. That Jesus Christ is Yahweh. He is God. And that He is to be honored like Yahweh, like the Father, he receives the same honor. And this is the great distinguishing mark between the righteous and the unrighteous. That Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through the Son. Well, John 5 continues. It says, uh, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Watch this statement. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. We look back to Malachi and this prophetic word given that says in that day, 
when the great separation happens, when the judgment happens, when the fires come, and when the, when the rains fall. How you stand or how you fall will be solely based on what you do with the Son of the living God. And those who are faithful to Christ and who confess Him as Lord and Savior will stand as standing on a rock. But those who blaspheme His name, those who deny Jesus Christ will be chaff. They'll be stubble. They'll burn up. There'll be no more. The ones, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and who does not serve Him. So I say unto you today, set your your hope on Christ. But I don't just say that so that you can say, well, I'm okay with God. I'm not going to hell. No. If you truly come into relationship with God, it's not going to simply be a one and done thing. But it is an ongoing, living and thriving interaction with the King of Kings, with the Creator of the world. That you would sit before Him and that Deuteronomy 6, 6 6-7 would find its fulfillment in you. That Jesus Christ who is the Logos, who is the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know what that word there is in the Greek? That, it ta- that He tabernacled among us. It's the presence of God. Jesus Christ is the Word. And when Jesus Christ, who is the Word, comes and takes root in your being... That he flows out of you and through you and builds relationships with everybody around you. And yes, it is condemnation to those who won't hear. To some it is the stench of death, but to others it is the fragrance of life. And that when you interact with God this way, when you, when you move with him and you, you, you sing with him and you, you meditate on him and he moves you, right? It's this place where you don't want to leave. You don't want to be anywhere else. Because when you come into the awareness that you are the treasured possession of God Almighty and that He is a jealous God, and you start to understand that the way that He vindicated His Son and the way that He raised Him from the dead will be the same reality that you have, not only in the life to come, but you get to experience that life now. You get to be the treasured possession of God, a royal priesthood who marches forward for the building of the kingdom of God. Let's all stand to our feet. If you've not, if you've not given your life to Christ today, if you've not confessed Him as Lord and Savior and submitted your whole being to Him, and you feel God calling and drawing your heart today, listen, as I've preached, you've seen, It's not about church attendance. It's not about some prayer you prayed 10 years ago at a VBS. It's not about how much money you give. You can do all of those things, but if your heart is wayward and you're not born again and you're not right with God, then that's meaningless. 
As a matter of fact, you're only building up the expectation of judgment and condemnation. For though you knew the right things, you still turn away and go away from God. Examine yourself today. Is God at work in your being? Do you love God and you know God loves you? Does God get Google eyes at you? Do you even know it? <clears throat> Maybe you need to be born again today. Maybe you need to give your life to Christ. Maybe it's just an unawareness. Maybe you are born again, but you're so familiar and you so identify with your own sinfulness that you can't enjoy relationship with God because you think that He don't love you because of the things that you do. Okay, repent. That's good. Clean, clean, you know, work out your own salvation, fear and trembling. Okay, stop sinning. But just know that God doesn't love you more when you're not sinning. God's only relational connection with you is the righteousness of Christ. There's nothing we can offer Him. Who is God that He would be served by men? What is God that He should need anything from us? We come through Christ. Through Christ alone. So if you need to come to the Father today, come through the Son. And when you come through the Son, there is no back door and He will not let you go. If you're in sin today, okay, repent. Repent. Let's get back on track because God is a good God. And He loves you and He deserves your love of Him. Amen? Let's do business with God today. Look to the Son.